Father, we need to cling to Christ. No matter what our vocation is, we are all equal to you. We're joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've given us the same grace to save all of us, Lord. And though you have us doing different things, we all need to cling to you. You are our only hope. In fact, as the song said, you really cling to us. Because sometimes we're prone to wander. And so I pray that you would keep us all close to you, that we would desire these relationships with you that would honor you and glorify you and bring us joy and comfort even in difficult times, Lord. Lord, help us to be a church that individually walks with you and so corporately that we move together following our Savior. Give us strength, even as we look into your word tonight, Lord. Think of those who are home watching now who aren't able to be with us for one reason or another. We pray you would strengthen them and bless them and help them in their walk with you as well, Lord. Thank you for this great, wonderful crowd here tonight, Lord. Please bless them. Open our ears and hearts now to the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've left Moses off in the presence of God, didn't we, last week? And so just by review... Um, here is our dear friend Moses, the mediator, the type that will someday uh, be fully fulfilled, that mediator will be fully fulfilled in Christ. But here he is with a very stubborn people. He can't get off the mountain with the first original tablets. And as he comes off, here they are breaking the very first two as they're worshiping a golden bull calf. Moses is struck with just grief over the sin of the nation. He has to mediate God with God to keep God's wrath from destroying all of the people. God listens to Moses, tests Moses, takes him to that brink in that. And then last week we see where God calls Moses back up and he prepares new tablets. And he's coming back into the presence of God where now this relationship between the nation and God has been ruptured because of sin. And God's grace is going to appear. And I can't remind myself enough when I study this. I wonder how many times my intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, has gone back up the mountain for me. Because we fail at times to walk with our Lord who has been so gracious with us. But Moses needs God. He's not going anywhere without him. I love that about Moses. And I love that about this passage, and it's such a good reminder. From a corporate ministry, like, Lord, we're not going anywhere without you. We need you to go with us as Riverbend Community Church. But how about personally? How about your relationships? How about job changes and moves and all those things? Do we look at this in that way? Oh, God, do not let me move somewhere, go somewhere... Take on something if you're not going with me. Too often I hear of Christians who take jobs with never even thinking about, is there a church there? Is there something God would want me to do? And, and why would God want me to go somewhere where there wasn't a church? Unless I'm being a missionary or something. So, so I think these are such important truths. And though we're talking about the nation of Israel, it's very easy to look and say, oh God, I don't want to go if you don't want to go with me. Because <laughs> it's bad out there when God's not with us. Anybody been out in the desert? Spiritually? You're looking around and going, how'd I get here? 
everything's drying up. My marriage is drying up. My joy's drying up. Everything's drying up because I'm out here without God, in a sense. Moses knows that is no place to be. And so he cries out. You remember, he wants to know God. And you can see our first point here. I want to go back and flush that out a little more. Um, he wants to have knowledge of God. He wants to learn from this immutable God. He needs strength. He knows now he is, he, God is approachable. He can get into his presence, this holy God, and not die. And so he's seeking God. I need to know you. I need to see your glory. What a statement. What a bold statement by Moses. I need to see your glory. Show me your glory. And so we remember last week Moses makes these new tablets, and up the mountain he goes. And he's seeking knowledge. He's seeking to grow and increase in the knowledge of God so he can, he can lead these people. And God, in a fascinating way, begins to describe himself to him. And, and remember, we talked about this last week, and you can't miss this. God never shows him physically who he is. He gives him his all-sufficient word. So many people want to show me. If I could just see Jesus. A lot of people saw Jesus and nailed him to a cross. If I could just see God. Everything God gives him is, is through hearing of the word of God. And that was enough for Moses. And we have the word of God far much more than Moses had at this time. But in that word, he tells him uncompassion. Remember that? As we looked at this in verse 6, he's uncompassionate, God says. I'm going to pass before you, and you're going to see that I'm a compassionate God. And, and remember, we talked about this compassion conjures up a, a mother's love that isn't easily run off. <laughs> and, and there's many moms in here, right? How often have your children or somebody in your life hurt you, and yet you kept loving? How much greater is God at that? He keeps looking after it, even when behavior is poor, they keep looking on, and so God's Love is gracious. He's gracious to his people. He's compassionate. He's full of grace, the Bible says here. That God was graciousness. That's what passes by him. And he sees and comes away and goes, God is gracious. He's full of mercy is the idea here. He has a disposition that shows favor far beyond human calculation. You cannot calculate the grace of God. If you or I tried to calculate it, we would all come up short in our numbers, wouldn't we? We would go, oh, it's uncalculable. He's infinite in his grace. And then we saw that he was slow to anger. And that's an interesting term, isn't it? One of the things we said that it is not a God who is frustrated easily. <laughs> or, or like us, strikes out in some way verbally or even physically, right? The idea is quite the opposite. It is the term that the Lord is reluctant to act. He's reluctant to act against his creation. Even against rebellion. Our God is slow to anger. And sometimes we want him to act more, right? We, Lord, stop this. It's happening in our capital or wherever. You know. Our God is slow to anger. And remember, he's perfect and right in all that he does. And so we trust him in these things. And he suffers long with people. He's given sinners opportunity to repeat how... To repent, how, how long, I mean, can you think of times where you were in the wrong? In the wrong against God's word. You did contrary to what God's word said, and God suffered long with you. He did not give you what you deserved. 
well, that was pretty much today. <laughs> you know, was, I mean, am I being honest here? I mean, think about it. How gracious. And then yet, people will abuse that grace. Oh, God's going to say, he saved me, and I'm going to be okay. I'll just keep doing what I do, and he's going to come around for me. Well, we'll look at that just in a moment. He suffers long with us. He's not a forgetful God, though. <laughs> Those two words do belong in the same sentence about God, right? He, he's not a God who's forgetful. He, he doesn't condone sin, and yet he is so patient with his own children. But then here we came to loving kindness, and I kind of was skipping through that to kind of finish up last week. But I want to look at that word loving kindness. I said last week loving kindness is is the agape type of love we see from the New Testament word here in the Old Testament. It's a love that's unconditional and, and is acted upon by this sovereign God. You know, one of the reasons that I really enjoy teaching the doctrines of grace is because they highlight the love of God. When I started learning the great doctrines of grace and being overwhelmed that God would know me before the foundations of the world and his irresistible grace would save me, I never thought that was unfair to me. I thought that was unfair to God, that he would love someone in such a way. And I learned the doctrines of grace were really the doctrines of love. And I've always preached them that way and taught them and reminded myself because he is such a God of love. Someone wrote me a very kind letter recently, and they said, you preach the doctrines of grace, you put the grace back in the doctrines of grace when you preach it. And I'm not think, I, I mean, because when, you, when you're around Reformed theology, in some circles they seem to be very, can be a, a bit intense. The doctrines of grace are full of God's love, they're full of grace. You fall in love with God when you study them. And when we stop trying to cross the line of God, what he does, you know, only he does, only he knows who the elect is, only he's perfect and wise and good enough to choose people from the foundation of the world. When we stop trying to go across that line, you start falling in love with a God who knew you from the foundations of the world. And this is who Moses is seeing. He's seeing this God, and, and it is, it's our Lord's attitude that just characterizes his ability to keep a covenant love and, and keeps delighting in people that are hard to delight in. I, I have, a long time ago, I quit judging Israel because I started looking at myself. Because <laughs> if somebody wrote a book about my life <laughs> and it was around for 6,000 years, I think it would be a lot of trouble. <laughs> I'm not sure I would like that. And I think it just highlights all of us who are prone to wander. So God's love is unconditional. And because he exercises such a perfect love, he, he can provide a perfect plan. And that's the plan of salvation. He loves perfectly, so he can provide a perfect plan. That makes sense, doesn't it? If he didn't love right, if he was unjust in his love, man, we would be in a lot of trouble. We're back to a scale system, somehow trying to please this not-so-loving God. Isn't that what so many people have about God? They haven't met the covenant-keeping God. Then we, and we, again, we touched on this briefly last week, we come to this word truth, and in some of the translations, about half of them, it's truth, and the other half, faithfulness. And it's because the word emeth uh, in the Greek 
is this idea of a lasting loyalty because of truth. And so it's an interesting word, and it, it can be translated either way, but it has this lasting loyalty that's driven by truth. Does that make sense? So God has this lasting loyalty to us. He loves us because that's who he is. That's the truth of who he is. And so he came full of grace and truth, it says about Jesus, we'll see in a moment. Now, again, this points to the Lord's covenant, uh, commitment to his covenant, which is, is not always matched by those the covenant was given to, right? And, and lasting loyalty of God is marked by this faithfulness to his children. That's why parents, we learn so much. You know, husbands, we are supposed to be this reflection of Jesus Christ. And wives are this reflection of the church. And, and fathers reflect God in, in certain ways to their children. And, and we, we learn as we grow in grace and knowledge. And we learn as we grow in the word of God to be more faithful fathers and faithful husbands. So we don't divert people away, our children away from the true knowledge of the Lord. And again, it's not, are we, we, we can't save our children, but we can see why, God, you are such a faithful God. Help me be a faithful father. Help me be a faithful husband. We, we need that. Because 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. One of the things we counsel a lot of people is, because someone sins against you, why would you sin against them? See, Jesus said when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, right? Peter says this about Jesus. He did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he kept trusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So what happens is when we respond with sin, when somebody sins against us and we respond with sin back, we don't exemplify the faithfulness of God. Here we have a nation of Israel that he has been so faithful to. He's brought them out of slavery. He split seas, fed them from the skies, killed their enemies, done all these things in a drop of a hat and 40 days later, and well, it doesn't seem like our guy's coming back. Let's worship a bull cow. And here's Moses interceding and highlighting, God highlighting his faithfulness to a people that doesn't deserve it. So he is faithful when we are faithless. Now, verse 7. Notice what the text says in verse 7. We left off. That's verse 6 that we were doing. Verse 7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. I always say this all the time everywhere I preach. God is in the business of saving people. Isn't that true? It's his elect. No one can escape him. All that the Father gives me, I'll lose none of them. I mean... God is in the business of saving people. I think sometimes we, because we see such difficulties in the world, we forget that God is in the business of saving people. And he shows himself faithful, mighty, and strong, and truthful all the way through as he draws people to himself. And so God's always drawing people to himself, even though we don't always see it. This is what he does. And I and imagine Moses just wrestled on the mountain because he's, Doubtless he has a human level of frustration with the people down the hill in a whole other category with this God who is transcendent, right? He's unequal to all things. And, I'm, and he's like, oh. I mean, he's caught in between in a sense. And so God says, listen, Moses, here's what you need to know. I have a bounding love. I'm abounding in loving kindness. 
I have more than what you need. And I love to save people. And I think that's what he's saying. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Now that's an interesting statement. A lot of people want to make all kinds of things about this. Well, there was millions and this was about the election of God. I don't think that's what that's about. I think it's just God saying, look, I love a lot of people. And I'm going to draw them to me. I was reading an old commentary. His name was Henry Law. He actually ministered during the late, well, middle 1800s, right through the Civil War. And he was writing on this passage. And listen to what he says about the mercy of God. He says this, Oh, my soul. He's talking to himself. Hearken to the melody of this sweet note. He's talking about this phrase, his loving kindness abounding to thousands. Hearken to this melody of this sweet note. The thought may arise sometimes that mercy visits but just a favored few. Or a rare gifted enriches of some rare souls. Nay, mercy's arms are very wide. Mercy's heart is very large. Mercy's mansions are very many. It has brought saving joy to countless multitudes, and it has saving joys for countless yet. The doors stand open, thousands have found it, but there are stores for thousands yet. Now this guy was, he believed in the doctrines of grace. But I think somewhere along the line sometimes we think we make the gate narrower than it is. God is in the business of saving people. Even people who worship bull calves. Even people who bow down to the things, the love of the things of the world, he delights in saving them. Now, he uses a word here for loving kindness um, in the Hebrew called kesed. Um, And this word points to the actions of God, points to the loving actions of God. It's expressed in his love, but it has an action to it. And it, it has the idea of God guarding and keeping intact a covenant love for his people. And we rattle it, try to break it, but God has the ability to keep his covenant love with us. He's committed to his people he loves. This is what the idea of this word is. He's committed. Now, certainly God is a God of love, but God is also a God who forgives. And that goes right with his love, doesn't it? Notice the next part of the verse. Who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Now, remember, this is the immutable God. He does not change. So it's very good for us to hear this. He forgives iniquity, he forgives transgressions, and he forgives sin. And we'll look at all those words because they're important to understand in our lives. But the key verb here is the word forgive. Now, the Hebrew word's an interesting word here. It means that he lifts a burden off an individual. That's the, the idea of the root of that word. Lifting up this burden off of an individual. Aren't you glad of that? Sin's a burden, isn't it? It'll burden you right to hell. <laughs> but the word goes further. It has more of an idea also that, that, that suggests that whatever the penalty is due, the one who forgives it carries it away by paying the price for it. Oh, my goodness. That's love. Not only am I going to lift this burden off you, I'm going to pay for the penalty that put it on you. That's what kind of love God has for us. That's the the depth of his forgiveness. Notice how the Lord wants himself to be known. Look at that phrase in here. He wants to be known as the one who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. 
Is that how you talk about your God? Or do you talk about your God, well, you're going to get it later someday, you people on the right or left or wherever you are. (laughs) See, God wants to be known as one who forgives. He's telling Moses, "This this is who I am, this is what I want you to tell the people, you tell them I am one who forgives. Boy, I love that. And I read this stuff and I weep and I say, well, I'm so glad you're God who wants to forgive. He has just proven this, right? He's, he's forgiven this nation. They made a golden bull calf. They rejected him as Lord. And, and here he's proven, I'm forgiving them. But, but he doesn't lighten up. I mean, the word of uh, iniquity here points to a twisted actions. The Hebrew word strong. This is a twisted thinking. You went from rejecting me to an Egyptian bull calf? You're, you're twist, your sin has made you twisted, is the idea here. But the Bible says, I forgive twisted sin. <laughs> I mean, think about that. People come to you and say, well, I, there's no way I could be a Christian. You don't know what I've done. Well, have you worshipped a golden bull calf? Have you actually formed one and fell down before it? Danced around, immorally around it? You done that? Well, no, I haven't done that. Well, you forgave that. How about being a murderer or a thief? He took one of his best murderers and made him the Apostle Paul. <laughs> How about a thief? He took care of him right in his last moments of life. I mean, think about this. God loves to forgive a twisted sin. This is what he does. And he's telling Moses this. And transgressions, I mean, think about the word. We, we get the idea of trespass from this. You know what the line is. You know where the fence is. The sign was hanging on the fence. And not only did you look left and right, you just cut the fence and drove through it. That's what sin does. And we know to him who knows the sin but doesn't do it. I mean, him who knows what to do. Oh, James was lost the translation. Um, but doesn't do it to him at a sin, right? And so that's that obvious transgression. This is what God says to do lovingly, right? Um, Here's what's good for you, and yet we go through it. And then he uses the word sin, probably the most used word in the Old Testament. Um, This word for sin is just the understanding of missing the mark. And it's more the idea, like, I know the target's there, but I think I'm going to shoot over here. (laughs) It's willful. And so here he uses all these biblical terms for treachery and disobedience and rebellion and and the disregard of God, and yet God says, I meet you with forgiveness. Wow. What an amazing God, isn't he? However, look at the end of verse 7. Yet. Because remember, there's a balance in God's great attributes. He does not... He's not a God lo- that is God higher in love than he is in justice. We always, as Christians, we have to watch ourselves. We will, we will push one of his attributes up over another. And God doesn't want that because that means he's deficient in one. At Christians are, I mean, the Christian polls are given to people all the time who think they're Christians. And they'll ask them, what do you think God's greatest attribute is? It's kind of a little bit of a setup. I've seen this. And most people will say, well, God's got to love. And it's certainly right. But his love is not greater than his justice. And so he says here to Moses, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
So the scriptures are showing us that these attributes of God's love and grace are balanced with attributes of righteousness and holiness. God's justice comes from his holiness. He's absent of sin. He must deal with sin. Everybody is going to die because of sin. Either you die or somebody dies in your place. That's that's the law of sin and death. And so he balances this out by showing the righteousness and holiness of God. And so Yahweh is defined, now think about this, I wrote this in my note. Yahweh now is defined as a God of righteous love. Okay? Now we blend it, some of those, to help us understand that love does not dominate his justice. And justice does not dominate his love. And yet he acts in perfect harmony of all of his attributes, all equally, all as great as that attribute can ever be because they're God's attributes. We call these, some of these uncommunicable attributes. There are communicable attributes that we have that we receive when we're saved. And now we can love one another and we can be gracious to one another and so forth. But there's certain things that belong to God. And God shows us that he's equal in all of those things. And so as many of us who have experienced God's love pressed upon us, he promises as well that the sins will be pressed upon those who reject him. And he's reminding us of this. This this would be such an unbalanced God who never dealt with sin. He would be a God you could not trust. And so he is showing Moses that I am perfect in all my attributes. Now this phrase here that goes on, let me read this here because a lot of people have stumbled over this and I want to spend a little time on this. Yet he will not by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And then look at this phrase here. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, there is somewhat of a Hebrew idiom here uh, as this is spoken. And and it's the idea that sin can be uh, in full continuation. It can just continue, right? You can kind of see that in there. Meaning the legacy of sin, I want you to listen to this, is not easily wiped out. And it'll persist through generations. So he's telling us that. So sin is just not something that, oh, well, you know, I don't think I can get the next generation. Sin is, I mean, its goal is to destroy, kill, generation after generation after generations. And God's making that known here. And we know if sin is unchecked, unrepented of, remains unforgiven, it will spread like wildfire from generation to generation. Now, certainly in Moses' days, I want you to think about this, it would have been normal for families to live together even down to third and fourth generation. Um, I mean, you know, young girls get married very early, they're having babies, and it doesn't take very long, and you're 40 or 50, and you're already into great-grandchildren. I mean, it does not take long in a situation like this in this ancient world. And so you would have generations living together. And you go, well, how do you know that? Remember a guy named Achan? Remember him going into Jericho? There was a list of them, but we're not supposed to touch these things. Of course, Achan disobeyed God, and he brought those things back. And doubtlessly, with the help of his family, he hides those things in the bottom of his tent, and little Ai just tears into um, uh, Israel, and they lose a war, and many people die. 
and you begin to realize what God does, he brings Achan and his family out, and there all of that family is wiped out. There was sin in that whole family. Now, most of the time, I want you to think about this, sin impacts is not just limited to an individual. I've heard too many men tell me this. Well, this has nothing to do with our kids. This is between their mom and I. Well, it's times where pastors just want to get the old boot out, but we try to remain calm and stay in the scriptures. <laughs> because you go, oh my goodness. You don't think that your sin is not going to affect the next generation and the generation after that if this is not repented of? And so it just, it doesn't seem to limit it. Sin loves to spread all over people. Tom and I talk about our cowboy days. You throw a big mama cow in a chute and squeeze her off, stuff's going to fly. <laughs> if you're close to the chute, it's going to get on you. And that's what sin does. You get around it, somebody gets squeezed a little bit, it's going to fly. And it lands on people. And, and, and notice, when you think about this, it spreads to everybody It's in contact. And in a family unit like this, it would spread, right? They're in close proximity. So God's judgment will follow down through generation until... Now listen to this. I want you to hear this. Until faith and repentance is granted and the chain, the deadly chain is broken. But the chain can be broken. I want to be really clear here. I have heard too many people down through my years of ministry um, say, Well, you know, it's generational sin. It's the sins of the Father. What covenant are you living under? The covenant of grace forgives us and sin is taken care of at the cross. It is not passed on. And so you have to understand this saying was not meant um, for a new covenant family to go, well, boy, I sinned and I know Jesus died for him, but I guess my kids are going to do it again. I mean, what's, what kind of God is that? What kind of grace is that? We have a God that, that can break the chain of sin. Dads can turn from sin and repent. They can confess to their children of their godlessness and their lack of trust in the scriptures. And they can, and they can by God's grace, put an end to sin that maybe they learned from their dad and their dad learned from that. They can put an end by the grace of God. Look, God's graciousness pardons the sinner so marvelously that God himself chooses not to remember sin, chooses not to bring it up, in fact, removes as far as the east is to the west. And to make a statement like that, that, well, you know, the sin of the fathers, they go on and on and on. Wait a minute, what kind of covenant do you live under? Now, look, men, women, people in here, myself included, if we have sinned and not repented of that, even as, as saved individuals, and continue in that and, and don't show our children, don't show our grandchildren the grace of God and speak of his grace and speak of his forgiveness. Yes, they might pick up our bad, sinful habits. But this is not a command. <laughs> like, well, no matter what, no matter what I do, my kids are going to struggle to say, no. By God's grace, I'm not my father. And by God's grace, my father's not his dad. And because some of us come to know the Lord, my father, myself, and things are being broke. God's beating sin by his grace through Jesus Christ. And, and, and 
Well, how is that done? Well, we pull close to the Savior. You walk with him. Want to beat sin? Walk with Jesus. I mean, I know it's simple, but walk with Jesus. What would Jesus do? I mean, we had those little silly sayings going around in, I think, the 80s and 90s. But walk with Jesus. If we had the conscious effort to know that the Lord was with us, that we're in the presence, we're on the holy mountain with God, we're seeing his attributes and glory before us when we look into the face of Christ, if we had that each time, we would not fall into sin so easily. Because we'd be looking into the face of Christ. Someone posted a quote from A.W. Tozer the other day. I don't know where I saw it, but it might have been one of you in here, but I wrote it down because it just grabbed me. Because I'm always trying to think, how can I stay away from sin? How can I keep growing in areas that I need to? And Tozer said this a long time ago. He said, the only safe place for the sheep is by the side of the shepherd. Oh, how are you going to do that? Word of God. My sheep hear my voice and what? Follow me. He goes on to say, because the devil does not fear sheep. He fears the shepherd. You want to you break ties with sin? Go get next to the shepherd. The devil has no authority over the shepherd. When the sheep pull in around the shepherd, they're greatly protected. His word is there to direct their paths. And listen, I don't care who your parents were or what they did. You are free in Christ. And God's grace does not equal the passing down of sin. It beats the passing down of sin. Amen? I mean, that's, that's why we love the grace of God. This is why we cling to him. Well, there's the first point. I just, I mean, I hit these verses and I just stopped. I mean, it's just like I'm on the mountain with Moses when I study this. Because you're just overwhelmed by the presence of God. But I think it, we have to take a moment to see that, the number two, God's glory is completely unveiled in the face of Christ. Now, listen, when we think about this, he doesn't see the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us that he's, you know, no man sees God and lives. But he has this face-to-face, present-to-presence relationship with God. And he, and he comes away knowing God. We'll see in a moment here on his face, worshiping this, this transcendent God of just hearing his word. And yet, God does show us his face through his son. I want to go to the New Testament and make sure we understand this, because this is such an important aspect of that we don't just stay in the old covenant, that we flow forward, because the new covenant is greater. The old covenant had to be completed by Christ to usher in the new covenant that would fulfill all of the law and fulfill all of this in Jesus Christ. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. You remember this text, it says that in verse 3, that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He's using this whole veil thing because Moses came off the mountain and had to veil it. And that was really what was the pro people's problem. They didn't want to really see the glory of God. And so they, they wanted that veil that scared them, it reminded them of God. They did not have a healthy view of God. So they made Moses wear this veil. And the veil still lies on their heart when the gospel is preached and that's what Paul is saying. But by the time he gets to verse 4, he says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So let's see what, what the God of this world, what the satanic 
devil, uh, the love of the world, what that's doing. What's its goal? What's its goal? Its goal is that they might not see the light of the gospel. That's, that's breaks through the darkness. They might not see the light of the gospel in, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So you go, I, well, I hope I can see God someday. Or I want to see God now. Look to Christ. He, he is the glory of God. Now follow me down. Verse 5, this is worthless. We do not preach our, ourselves. That's worthless. But Christ Jesus as Lord, ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness. It can pierce darkness. It can pierce sin. It can pierce generational sin. It can pierce all the evil sin and death that Satan can bring and our own flesh can conquer up. Light can pierce it. It is the one who shone in our hearts. This is the sovereignty of God, right? Didn't say we chose him, did all these right things, walked the aisles, prayed prayers. Those, those might be very good things that you did, but those don't save you. It is God who shone into our hearts. Notice to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he has exposed all that Moses saw or heard on Mount Sinai. He's exposed all of that and even more in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Turn to Hebrews. Let me prove this point. I know we've been here before, but if you're like me, I've got to see these again. God was speaking in a lot of ways in previous times. Prophets, even donkeys. Verse 2. See, now in these last days has spoken in son is the literal translation. <laughs> It's just solitary in Son, in Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And now look at this. You want to see God? Well, here he is. This is what Moses would come back and say. He is, he is the radiance of his glory. I mean, think about it. He's the brightness of God. Uh, the Mount of Transfiguration referenced that the glory of Christ, that was unveiled there just for that moment for the inner circle of the disciples to see was brighter than the sun. Well, you go stare at the sun and you won't be staring at anything for a while. I mean, just imagine the radiance. So the radiance of God, the, the expression of his glory is Christ. And then if that's not enough for you, the exact representation of his nature. They share nature. And God says throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, says, I will not share my glory with another. But yet this verse says that they, that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature, the essence, and the glory of God. So they have to be one. And again, every religion of the world rejects the Trinity. Every religion of the world, except Bible-believing Christians, re rejects the deity of Jesus Christ. That he's fully, fully God. Now notice that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He has everything held together. Can you imagine that power? I mean, we can't get our mind around that. People struggle with eschatology when they come to 2 Peter chapter 3 when everything poof blows up. Well, all Jesus has to do is take his hands off of it. And there goes the old heavens and the old earth and everything else. He upholds all this by the word of his power. 
And notice he, when he made purifications, he sat down at the right hand, the authority of God. He is the authority of the God, of the majesty on high. He has everything God. He has all the majesty. He has all the authority God has. He is equal with God. And if you don't want to, if you struggle with that whole creator thing, then go to Colossians. Folks, one of the things you've got to help us get this Bible school up in the next year or so. We've got to have somewhere to go for our young people to hear the balance of creation taught. They'll go right down here to the state colleges and all that, and they will not be told that Jesus created the world. They'll be told just the opposite. Am I not right, Luke? Luke and I have talked about this. They'll, they just spread the lies of evolution. We've got to be able to help our young people understand that Jesus Christ is the creator and not take in. Because once you get into evolution, you rob God of all of his authority, all of his power, and then salvation just gets weaker and weaker. And if you don't think evolution affects salvation, oh my goodness. It is such a slippery slope. But notice this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The conversation is Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God. So if Moses did see something, and when he said something, who did he see? He saw a pre-incarnate Christ. Most theologians in our camp fully believe this. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. This doesn't mean he was created. It means he has charge. He has, the word is protos. He has authority over everything created. This is who he is. Verse 16, you want a fuller explanation of that? Well, here we go. For by him all things were created. All? You should circle that in your Bible. <laughs> I don't know where you're going to fit evolution into that. you got a big problem with your Bible. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. The little atoms, neutrons, and all this stuff is flying around here to keep something together. God created that. Christ created that. Our God, Jesus Christ, created that. When you listen to uh, people like ICR, um, Institute of Creation Research, they'll always say things like this. Uh, Christ our creator, Christ our creator, they talk that way. Because they're trying to help people realize that Jesus Christ is the creator. You know, it's visible and invisible by the thrones or dominions, all the powers and all the angelic worlds, all of that, rulers and authorities, all things have been created through him. There's just no room outside of that, right? And he is before all things, so he, he's eternally existed before them, and so all things are held together through him. He's also the head of the church. And if he can create the world, why don't we bound our knee to him and say, you're the head of the church, the elders, pastors, overseers, we are underneath you. We are your shepherds, uh, under shepherds who work for you. You're the head of the church. Look at chapter 2. Verse 9. Context, Jesus Christ again, all the way down through here. Paul is taking on the false thinking of um, Gnosticism, uh, self-righteousness. He's taken on all this stuff to the church of Corinth. And he says, for in him, that's Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in what? Spirit form? Bodily form. And you know what's so cool about that? Is that means Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven, spirit form, stepped out of heaven... By the Holy Spirit was placed in the womb of a virgin named Mary. He went through the nine-month cycle of growing in the womb of Mary, was vaginally birthed, 
brought into this world just like every one of us, born under a woman, born by a woman, born under the law, live this life in a sinful, godless world, a pagan world, but live perfectly so he could sacrifice himself for us, and he did it bodily. And then God raised him bodily, and you and I will see him bodily someday. That's incredible. And after his resurrection, he shows up. Yeah, he can walk through walls. I think that's really cool. The Bible says we'll be like him when we see him. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, you need to go down to the 156th floor of the mansion? I'm going to go down right to it. Um, it's a beautiful thing. God, and he's hungry. He eats. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful things about it. But he's in body. And he says, look, you know, uh, uh, who's the guy who didn't believe Thomas? Put your finger right here. Put it in there. Thrust your hand in my side. Because some you need to see to believe. And, and that's not what gets you saved. Blessed are those who don't see and believe. Now look, it doesn't end there because you can't read nine without, excuse me, you can't read nine without reading ten. And in him, that's Jesus, you have been made complete. Well, what about the sins passed from the Father to the generation and generation and generation? Well, yeah, if you don't ever repent, don't get saved. There's no way to cut that off. You'll just keep sinning and they'll keep sinning and everybody will just die and go to hell. But in Christ, we're complete. My sins are forgiven. And I can speak to family members and loved ones and, and, and those that maybe I failed in some way or sinned against and say, I am sorry, Jesus Christ forgave me. You don't have to go down that road. You can have the freedom from sin that, that I now have because I'm complete in Christ. Look at that. And then it turns back to Jesus again and said, he is the head over all rule and authority. I haven't warned you out enough. Go to one more passage. You can see I'm not going to get to my third thought. But go to John chapter 1. Because I think what John is doing is expressing that he has saw, seen in Jesus what Moses saw on Mount Sinai. First 18 verses of the book of the Gospel of John is a, what we call a prologue. And God inspires John to write these overwhelming statements of who Jesus Christ is. This glorious truth here. And then it starts in on his life, right? But notice verse 11, he comes to his own and his own don't receive him. Isn't that what God did? He came to his own. He brought them out of Egypt. He split seas, fed them bread, did all this for them, dwelt among them. When fire, pillars of fire and clouds and, and in the tent of meetings, he, he was there, he was among them, but his own did not receive him. Jesus is God. And, and you want to talk about sins repeating, well, this is what happens. So Jesus comes and his own reject him. The Romans said he's innocent, I find no fault in this, Pilate over and over, let him go. And his own people say, no, crucify him. He's made himself equal with God. Right there, they gave their own death sentence, didn't they? But John comes back and says, but as many as received him, those who have received God's grace, to them he granted, gave, by his own authority and own right, the ability to become children of God. And it's for those who believe in his glory, in his name. Nobody is saved in this room who has not seen the glory of Jesus Christ. 
You had to see his glory. And up against your sin, you ran to him and said, oh, save me. You saw his glory. And John's, in a sense, on the mountain with Jesus, seeing the exact same things that Moses on the mountain was seeing, in a, in a sense, right? And they realize this can't be something born by blood. This can't be something done by the will of flesh. This can't be something done by the will of man. It has to be done by God. And then all of a sudden, John just breaks into such a similar scene and says, the word became flesh. And notice this, he dwelt among us, just like God was dwelling among the nation. He dwelt among us. And this is what we saw, just like Moses saw. We saw his glory. We saw his glory. And I'll tell you what, there was no one that convinced the Apostle John that Jesus wasn't God. And he went to his grave teaching that Jesus was God. In fact, his epistle shows that those who reject Jesus of God are, are of the Antichrist. They are Antichrist when you reject Jesus as God. So... John can't contain himself as the Spirit moves him along. And not only did we see his glory, we saw the glory of the only begotten of the Father, the unique one, not the birthed one. This is the uniqueness of him. The word begotten sets him apart from everything. He's, there's only one Son of God. And this is where so many religions just stumble over simple translations. But he is the unique one. From the Father, sent by the Father to expose us to the Father. So we know who the Father is. There's only one way to do that. Notice he's full of grace and truth, just like God told Moses. John says, look, I testify about it. I cry out, saying, this was he who, whom I said, now he's turning to John the Baptist, who came after me, was higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Well, wait a minute, they're thinking, well, you're older than him, and how can that be? Because he's eternally existed. He's talking about his eternality. And notice verse 16, for his fullness, we have all received. If you've been, I just said this, if you are saved, you received grace upon grace. Boy, we love singing those truths, don't we? And, and, we, and we put ourselves under preaching, and we study the Bible so that we experience grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. This is our God. This is our Savior. For the law was given through Moses. Couldn't. It pointed to God. It certainly showed the character of God. But it showed we couldn't keep it. Because if you stumble in one, one aspect of the law, James says, you commit, against, you commit sin against all the law. But notice what happened. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Man, aren't you grateful for that? I mean, you want to live in our scale system? Anybody want that? Maybe you live with somebody with scale system. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? You just can't match up. You want a God to live in it? You want to live with a God and hope? My grandmother died this way, hoping somehow that she had done enough to overcome her sins of her youth. And rejected Jesus as her only Savior. But notice verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the unique one of God who is in the bosom of the Father. I mean, you can't, he's, it's telling you he's, he is God, right? You, you can't separate them. And notice this phrase here, he has explained him. You get the word exegesis from that word. 
He's the exeget of God. Isn't he that beautiful? He is a holy, righteous, gracious, truthful, faithful God, and we see him in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see why we preach Christ. And we can't preach our Old Testament without understanding it through the New Testament. Because you'll find yourself wayward. And you'll find yourself doing this. And you'll be hard to live with. And, and you'll never have assurance. Oh, look into the face of Christ. You'll see God. Amen? Father, we are overwhelmed as we stand on the mountain with Moses here for a few minutes. We've seen your glory. But we had something more than Moses. We have Christ. He didn't get to see that, but he hoped in one who would deliver him. And he believed you would send that one. That there would be a greater prophet than him. Moses spoke of that. And he told the nation to listen to him. So Moses knew that you would send one greater that would lead to deliverance. And Lord, here on this side of the cross, we've seen the greatness of Jesus Christ. He is glorious. He's full of truth. We look into the face of Christ and see you, Father. And Lord, we have the whole scriptures in front of us. We have the Lord Jesus exegeting God for us breaking you down word by word, truth by truth, characteristic by characteristic, and not just telling us, but living it in front of us, living God in front of us because Jesus, you're God. And so you are our hope. You're all we have. We rest everything in you, Lord, for salvation and life and daily stuff and everything else, Lord. Our eternity is resting upon you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we don't have a hope that's weak. We have a eternal hope in your son that he can bring us to you so lord thank you for these reminders thank you for moses that human mediator that points us to the lord jesus christ thank you for our savior lord may we be gripped by his truth tonight in jesus name amen